All right, Jesse, last week brought up some serious debates about mental health and criminal justice. What do you have for me this week? When a free-spirited 20-year-old woman goes missing, fingers are pointed at her older coworker slash lover and his jealous wife. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad friends, dead ends, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please, 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 please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled, as always, this week to welcome and shout out a new set of patrons. Welcome to Samantha M., Melissa C., and Brooke K., Bailey B., Aaron O., and Carrie R., and Ashley K., Lori D., and Jen N., So by the time this comes out, hopefully we'll have gotten out my Patreon episode as well. Yes. And that is one you guys will definitely want to check out. We did two this month. Andy did the Way Down Crazy Cult and Gwen Chamblin, which is already out. And then I think as of this recording or when it's released, mine will be out too, just that tail end of January, which was also an insane... Rip from the headlines, Law and Order SVU inspired forensic files case that you will not want to miss if you are thinking about joining the Patreon. It's a good time. Today is a case, and I, I'm hoping I didn't miss somebody else who recommended it because I know this was recommended by Denise L. So thank you, Denise. But it might have been recommended by somebody else, or at least maybe somebody sent us a link because this is definitely a more recent love murder and everything about it is the epitome of the types of cases we focus on. It's love, it's jealousy, it's lust. And unfortunately, someone is not here with us today to tell their side of the story. So we're going to do our best today to tell that person's story. And I think that we should just get right into it. It was about 1.44 in the early morning hours of Wednesday, December 18th, 2013, when Brianna Worrellman got a call from her roommate back in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Brianna was home in New Jersey in anticipation of the holidays. But she had felt bad leaving her coworker and very close friend, Heather Elvis, behind. Just a couple days before, Brianna had been walking out the door of her apartment when Heather had stopped her and begged her not to leave. She was going to miss Brianna, her other half, she said, just too much. It was typical Heather, warm, loving, impetuous, She wasn't afraid to wear her heart on her sleeve. Brianna had assured her that they'd be in constant contact. And January would be here before they knew it. And then, of course, Brianna would be home. Heather called her the next day, brimming with excitement that she had just landed a dream job as a makeup artist at a nice Myrtle Beach salon, something that she had been trained to do at cosmetology school. 
A great job was lined up, and almost as nice as that was that she had a promising date that very evening with a cute guy that she had known back in the day. Brianna was excited for her friend, who was really more like a little sister to her, because they were so close, and was eager to hear how the date went when her phone rang at her family home in New Jersey so late that night. Brianna was shocked to discover that Heather was hysterically crying when she answered the phone. She tried to pull what had happened out of Heather, but Heather was reluctant to share the truth and said that everything was fine through gasping breaths. Brianna soon figured out that Heather wasn't telling her what happened because she knew that Brianna wouldn't approve. Okay. Some months back, Heather had gotten herself involved with a married man almost twice her age. Whoa. She had gotten in deep and the whole thing had been an awful mess. Brianna was relieved beyond measure when the affair had ended, and she had been proud of Heather for moving on with a new job and hopefully a new man, one her own age who would treat her with the love and respect that she deserved, one who was not married. So why in the hell was she crying about this guy? Heather explained through sobs that only minutes before she had called Brianna that she had received a phone call from a strange number. So it wasn't this guy's number. But when she picked it up, she had heard her ex-lover's voice. She said that if she had known it was him, she would have never answered the phone. So this guy told her that he had left his wife and he missed her and that he was ready to commit. He needed to see her. Brianna told her, do not do it, Heather. Don't you dare. You have been doing so well. You finally moved on. You went on a date. You've been doing great. Like, don't even think about this guy. Yep. It sounds familiar, right, Andy? <laughs> Not married guys, guys, but like just no. guys. <laughs> dumb guys. Just dumb guys. Yeah, so Brianna's talking her friend through this. And Brianna had a lot of sympathy for Heather. She had just had such a hard time getting over this guy. And she was just trying to set, remind her of all she had to look forward to and how badly she had gotten hurt. And Heather was really upset, too, because she had just barely gotten home from this date that she went on. So she's like, how did he know that I had just gotten home? Is he like watching me or what is this message from the universe? What's going on here? So Brianna calmed Heather down by asking her about the date. She's like, okay, screw the other guy, but you just got home from your date. So how did that go? And slowly Heather perked up a little bit. She described what had happened on the date, how nice he had been and how he had taught her to drive stick shift in a parking lot. And she said that she had plans to see him again the very next day. And as for the other guy, she promised Brianna that she would sleep on it and decide how to handle the situation in the morning, that she wasn't going to reach out to him. So she told Brianna she'd call her in the morning and they exchanged I love yous and said goodnight. When Brianna closed her eyes that night in her family home, she felt relieved that her dear friend, her little sister, was finally making some good decisions. And she thought that everything was going to be okay. But it wasn't. In a little over two hours, Heather Elvis, vibrant, artistic, rebellious Heather, would vanish. And Brianna would spend the next decade revisiting that last conversation, wondering how everything had gone so terribly wrong. Terrifying. It is. Today, we will be talking about the tragic disappearance of Heather Elvis. Again, thank you so much to Denise L. for recommending this case. It sure is a doozy, and I'm sure so many of you guys know about this one because it is one of our more recent cases. There's been 
developments as recent as the past couple years or so. My primary source today is the book Missing dot 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 and Presumed Dead by Michael Fleeman, our old favorite Michael Fleeman. Yep. As well as an episode of 2020 called The Devil's Triangle from season 43, episode 16. So let's start by talking about Heather. Heather was a bright, beautiful young woman who it's really hard not to call a girl when you see her pictures or you hear people talking about her. She just seems so young in her photos. And I think it was one of the prosecutors later on who will say that she seems more like a girl play acting as a woman. Okay. I felt some sort of camaraderie because she works in restaurants. And I just feel like when you're at a certain age, when you're 18, 19, 20, you're not a teenager per se anymore. You're maybe launched into the world. You're going to school or you're working full time. But you're not really quite an adult. No, no. Most people are still like in college and having their everything paid for and or on scholarships. You're not fully an adult yet at all. I know. I just was also remember like scamming my way into bars in Boston and thinking like I was some hot shit like adult woman using my charms to get in when really I was just a kid with a badly chalked ID. Yeah. There's a lot of people that have different thoughts and feelings about who Heather was or what she was like. And you just see this woman. It's like that Britney Spears song. She's like on the cusp of like between being a girl and a woman. And now she's stuck in this place forever, like an amber, because we never got to find out what she was going to become. Michael Fleeman described her as everybody's sister, everybody's daughter, and everyone's BFF in her home community of Sacoste, South Carolina. She grew up there with her loving parents, Debbie and Terry. Terry was a prominent businessman who ran a sign shop in close by Myrtle Beach. She also had a little sister named Morgan, who is the very spitting image of Heather, and the girls were very close. Heather loved art in all forms. She loved to draw and paint. She was very interested in fashion design. She loved being in front of the camera, but also felt a calling to the artistry of becoming a professional makeup artist and potentially a photographer. She could be stubborn and she had a rebellious streak. Her dad, Terry, was proud of how independent and hardworking she was. He said, she's always had a job, even though I didn't require her to. She wanted to do it her way since she was 17 years old. And she really did. Heather worked at restaurants in Myrtle Beach while she put herself through cosmetology school in the hopes of becoming a big-time makeup artist someday. Heather's path was hardly smooth, however. She could clash with her more conservative parents about the life they had planned for her. They still saw the young woman who had gone on mission trips and loved ice cream and babies. While Heather was coming into her own, experimenting with who she was and what kind of woman she wanted to be, like we were just talking about, is anyone who has lived through those turbulent early 20s, late teen years knows you're going to make mistakes and you're going to endure your share of heartbreak. And that sounds like what phase of life Heather was in at this point. After graduating high school, she began dating a young man who was allegedly emotionally and very possibly physically abusive to her. She had a hard time breaking away from this guy, and it seems like they were in a dramatic and unhealthy on-and-off-again relationship for a little while. Before living with Brianna, she had bounced around, crashing with friends, occasionally living in her car, occasionally living at home again, until she would inevitably clash with her parents about her lifestyle. 
as young people are wont to do with their parents. Despite the chaotic nature of her love life and living situation, Heather was considered a model employee. At the time of her disappearance, she was working at a chain restaurant called The Tilted Kilt. Have you heard of these? Yes. <laughs> yes. Sadly. Yeah. So basically, guys, it's like a Celtic motif hooters. That's about basically I could say. The uniforms are a plaid bra and tiny pleated skirt with this little white like shrug thing over it. Like imagine Britney Spears hit me baby one more time with a Scottish theme. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, I went as that music video when I was a sophomore in high school. I don't know how my parents let me do that. <laughs> I feel like this episode is going to evoke a lot of people thinking about some of their late teens, mid teens early 20s choices. Yes. And feeling very grateful that we all survived through them. Because when I was researching, writing this, everything about this, I was like, oh, God, my heart hurt. Because we all make these mistakes. We all, I don't know, it's hard to say. It just, it feels very relatable to me. And so she worked here and they have pictures of her, which of course, after her disappearance, just all over the media of her wearing this uniform. Which is where she worked. It's what she had to wear. Yeah, it wasn't even a Halloween costume. By choice. Yep. Yeah. Now, I did look up the, the Tilted Kilt, the corporate website. It looks like there's one in your area, kind of, Andy, in the L.A., greater L.A. area. Apparently now, guys, I just want you to know, they're Kilt Guys TM. Which is that they're letting guys work here and they have to wear a kilt as well. That's kind of amazing. Which I'm glad for. Although they get to wear t-shirts, which I'm like, hey, if the, the girls got exposed their entire stomachs, I think you could go with shirtless. Come on. They should be shirtless. Should for be. sure. What's good for the yes. goose is good for the gander here. Or they could wear a bra too, whatever. <laughs> I mean, if they wanted yeah. a little coverage. Maybe just the shrug. Just the shrug over. Yeah. Yeah. The shrug over the nips. Over the nips. Yeah. Yeah, so at least, you know, they're now bringing kilt guy TMs in. Heather was not yet 21, so she legally could not serve alcohol. So she was a hostess at the Tilted Kilt, and she did a damn good job. Her manager, Jessica, described her as reliable, very friendly. She always had a big smile for everyone who came into the restaurant. She was professional, and she was a hit with the restaurant patrons and her coworkers alike. In July of 2013, though, Heather ended up getting a little too popular with a certain coworker. Sydney Moore was a good-looking 37-year-old maintenance worker who serviced the tilted kilt after hours. Sydney, when I first saw pictures of him, he reminded me of an actor who is in How to Get Away with Murder, which was a Shonda Rhimes show from a little while ago. He looks like the guy who plays Frank. I guess the actor's real name is Charlie Weber. So he's like kind of like stocky. He's got blue eyes and brown hair. There was you know, a disarming, lazy smile thing going for him. He was described as laid back and he had built a company that did cleaning and repair work on restaurants. It seems like mostly for chains after hours. So after they closed, he would go around and clean and service these restaurants. He worked for Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Sticky Fingers Rib House, Long Beards, and of course, the Tilted Kilt where he met Heather. Roommate Brianna would later say that she was there when the flirtation began, 
the young women had been off that night. They had gone to a Pelicans baseball game and then they returned to the Tilted Kill to kick back and eat some fries and kind of hang out after hours. When Sydney walked by, Heather ended up perking up. It was obvious to Brianna that she was interested in the man. And Heather ended up staying way after closing to chat it up with the handsome maintenance man. She also made it very clear on social media in early July of 2013 of her intent. Heather tweeted that the guy who builds things at my job makes me cream myself. And later in the same day, she wrote, one of these days I will drag that man into the mop closet and have my way with him. Lord have mercy. Which is, again, I think I'm just having PTSD about oversharing on social media as a 20-year-old. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't oversharing, but I was all about the mop closet. <laughs> I was about the mop closet. But I would say that when I see my Facebook memories, a lot of times I posted song lyrics and stuff. Yeah, and the captions in general are quit. Like, I'm like, why? So it's, yeah, I'm having like secondhand embarrassment about this, just thinking about some of the stuff that I posted on social media. I would write stuff like, it was back in the day when Facebook was like, Jesse Prey is... And I'd write heartbroken, period. <laughs> Very single, in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> I was like, really bad. And by anyone, I mean everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty wow. sure it helped attendance at the bar that evening when I was working. But yeah, so we know what she was thinking. And obviously, it feels like she is referring here to Sydney, this maintenance man. It appeared that the feeling was mutual. Sydney began to make a habit out of hanging around the hostess stand and chatting with Heather. He would routinely stop by to bring her bagels or Heather's favorite Starbucks coffee. Jessica, the manager, did not think much of the harmless flirtation until she happened to see some texts between the couple while Heather was charging her phone in the office. So the text popped up. Sydney had been texting Heather and Jessica ended up reading one text that discussed how the couple had had sex on the back patio of the Tilted Kilt. No, you can't charge your phone in, in the manager's office when you're having conversations about that. And I get the like excitement. She just wants her phone to be charged so she can continue the flirtation. Like I get it. And also screen lock. Yeah. I mean, this was 2013. So I don't know. Did they still have the same type of where you couldn't hide the messages coming up. I, feel I like, don't know when that was introduced. I don't either. But then don't char- you just, your phone's going to die, babe. That's what Jessica said, that the only thing that Heather was ever in trouble for at work was that she was too glued to her phone. So they were like, you can't have it at the hostess stand because... I mean, yeah. hosting's boring. I know. Like, hosting <laughs> is boring as fuck. Yes. Like, it's the worst job. Everyone is so mean to you. The servers are mean to you. The, the people coming in, the customers are mean to you. Everyone hates you. It's low paying. You see yeah. everyone wrong. It's minimum wage. Like, it's the worst at the restaurant. So I don't blame her for wanting to be on her phone. Yeah. So Jessica saw these messages and she was like, okay, okay. Flirting with the janitor is one thing, but having sex at your place of employment is another thing. No, sir. So soon the whole restaurant kind of knew what was going on, which is always happens. I mean, when I worked at restaurants, everyone was always like stopping each other and people always found out about it. And everyone has some thoughts about this. Brianna and Jessica encouraged Heather to break things off with Sydney and find a guy her own age whom she did not work with to date. 
But Brianna would later say that when you tried to tell Heather what to do, odds are she would do just the opposite. And she was by now, by the time everyone's finding out about this affair, believing that she's totally head over heels in love with Sydney. So what's wrong with that, you might say? She's 20. She's technically an adult. Yes, there's a 17-year age difference, but that's not unheard of. Neither was being coworkers really the problem because he was more of like a contract employee. They didn't really work together. Well, the problem was that Sidney Moore was a married man who had three children with his wife of 15 years. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Ugh. So let's talk about Sydney and his wife. Sydney grew up in Somerville, South Carolina, a quaint southern hamlet about 20 miles outside of Charleston. He was one of two boys in the family who attended a Christian private high school. After graduation, he moved to Myrtle Beach to start a career in hospitality, where business was booming due to tourism. One of the restaurants Sydney worked at in the early days was the Hard Rock Cafe, which... Late 90s, early 2000s, the Hard Rock Cafe was the shit, was it? I don't know. I think maybe just <laughs> maybe just in upstate New York. I remember there was one kid in my class that had a whole bunch of Hard Rock t-shirts. Like all the ones he had visited? Yeah, like his parents always took him to a different Hard Rock one of their trips and he'd wear the t-shirts all the time. I don't know if I thought that was cool. I just thought it was a destination. But I, I think you could make some good money back there in the day. I'm sure. Hard Rock was different from Planet Hollywood. Yeah, I might be confusing those two as well. But it was the same idea. It was like celebrity owned. Yeah, and it had like a bunch of like guitars yes. of like musicians. So it was like Planet Hollywood, but for musicians. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It was at the Hard Rock that Sydney met a big haired blonde with a strong personality who was just about three years older than he was. Tammy Kazin, Sydney's future wife, was a big time rock music fan. Some going as far to call her a groupie. Her family had been in Horry County, South Carolina for generations. Tammy's mother was a gospel singer and server while her dad was a welder. She also had a younger sister named Ashley. Author Michael Fleeman gathered information about Tammy from her relatives, friends, and numerous online postings. He wrote, A classmate recalled Tammy as a rock music fan who had her picture taken with the lead singer of the 80s hairband Warrant. A relative told WMBF-TV that Tammy was more than just a friend. When she was in her teens, she was, I call them groupies, followed rock bands around, said a relative who wished to remain anonymous. She was bragging about being with them and stuff like that. Years later, Tammy told friends about her colorful past on an online chat page. In the late 80s, I was big into the whole rock and roll scene. Long-haired, pretty boys, bubblegum metal, Metallica and punk too, but definitely not junk like Iron Maiden or death metal. Ew! Exclamation mark, she wrote. <laughs> Rude. So she's like a real-life Penny Lane. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I want to scoop Penny Lane in with this whole Tammy bucket right now. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Tammy Lane. <laughs> Tammy Lane. Let's call her Tammy Lane. On Facebook, she wrote, my parents were always liberal with me and let me do anything I wanted. And although I've partied with some of the biggest names and bands and celebs on this planet, not once have I tried drugs, exclamation mark, in parentheses, not even pop when I was in a room full of people snorting coke and shooting heroin into their arms, end parentheses. <laughs> like on Facebook. I mean, this is, we'll just call this episode oversharing on social media. Yeah. I don't know why you'd be like, oh my gosh, I like pot is right there when people are literally shooting up heroin <laughs> next to you. Like I'd be like, get me the fuck out of here. 
She said, I've seen and been around things that would make you cringe, yet not participated in the acts. Why? Because I was raised to know better. She adored her parents and as an adult would live on their property, but her heart always belonged to music. She went on to say, I never wanted to be a rock star myself, but I wanted to marry one. I could have married one or at least moved to New Orleans with him and been his woman for the rest of my life. Anyway, I took a different route in the mid 90s and for the better. This is screaming Facebook post. Yes, this is a Facebook post. She found out that there were different ways to remain in the rock world and stay true to herself. She said, I wanted to be BFFs with all these people. And the only way to do it without being a slimy piece of, well, you guys know what I mean, was to work in the business. That's when she developed her love of photography. She would claim to have photographed dozens of rock stars, starting with the band Warrant. They were pretty hot at the time. She said in the parentheses, not in looks, but on MTV. That was my first paying job and I never looked back. She had referred to the members of the band as some of my closest friends in 1989 in the early 90s. Good thing, too, because they toured with some rockin' bands and I used it to my advantage, she wrote. Over the years, I've met, gotten to know, hung out with, worked with, played with more than 100 signed bands. I really would like to reach out to Warrant for a comment on these. Are there no fo- actual photos? So there's no photos in this book. I did a, like a brief Google search. I'm sure we can. I'm going to try to scare up a picture of her with the lead singer of Warren. So she's claiming her first paid job was with Warren. It's not. She's claiming. Proving. I haven't found a, a coffee table book of Warren as photographed by Tammy Kazan. <laughs> I have not found it on the Amazon, guys. It seems like by the early to mid 90s, she traded the rock star life in for the hard rock cafe life. Wow, you went there. I did. Where she served, bartended, made a pretty decent living, and of course, met future cheating husband, Sydney Moore. Tammy and Sydney were crazy about one another and ended up getting married less than a year after they began dating in a Baptist church ceremony. They honeymooned on a Royal Caribbean cruise and finished the honeymoon at Disney World in Florida. Um, okay. Okay. Get ready. We got, I, I'm going to give you a hashtag Disney adult alert right now. Cause this is the territory we're moving into. And guys, just so you know, Andy and I love Disney. We do. Oh, we love, we love, Disney. We love Disney. No shade on Disney. But I don't know if I want to finish my honeymoon <laughs> at Disney. <laughs> yes. And do you mean finish? Probably. I mean, we're going to get into it later, but Cindy and Tammy are very fond of public sex. So I wouldn't put it past them. Tammy soon shared her lifelong passion for all things Disney with her new husband. Tammy later wrote on a Disney chat board, he grew up five hours from Walt Disney World and not one time did his family take him there as a child. How can someone not take their kids to Disney? There's a lot of reasons, Tammy. One, maybe they couldn't afford it. Two, maybe they don't like going to Disney. Three, maybe he didn't want to go to Disney. Four, maybe they don't want to watch people who just got married have sex in public places at Disney. (laughs) I could keep going. I think those are all salient points. I also like that she's like, not five hours from Walt Disney World. Five hours is a really long time. That's a long ass time. That is, that's not like that five minutes. Pack up kids, we're leaving at 2 a.m. <laughs> long drive. <laughs> yeah, it's not like it was right around the corner there. Tammy wrote that the first time Sydney took one look at the castle, it was, quote, love at first sight. She wrote he had been a fan of the cartoons and Walt since he was a baby, but after this first visit to the Magic Kingdom, he was hooked. Tammy took all that rock star energy and channeled it into her new obsession, Disney. 
The couple had three children between 1999 and 2005, and Tammy homeschooled the kids and ran her own travel agency, Magical Vacations, which, of course, specialized in Disney parks. It looks like Sydney may have tried to book some modeling gigs at one point because reporters found a ExploreTalent.com profile where he featured different modeling type headshots of himself and said he was interested in modeling work, but there's no record of him ever working as a model. Okay. Instead, he started Palmetto Maintenance LLC, making a good living servicing big restaurant chains at night, like we talked about. All was not a Disney fairy tale, however, with this couple. There were rumors of infidelity on each side. Not only did Sydney have an affair with Heather, there was another rumored love interest that had happened at some other point in their marriage. By the time Heather disappeared, it would also come to light that Tammy had been sexting, texting, and exchanging sexually explicit content with a very young man herself. In 2013, an 18-year-old named Caleb had met 40-year-old Tammy in some... Whoa. Yeah, it was like some sort of cougar life internet forum. The relationship had ended without any actual in-person sexual acts being consummated when the boy's mother discovered the relationship. Oh. Yeah, there was another guy that she was talking to as well. I'm still not entirely clear what all of these relationships constituted, if they're consummated, how serious things got, but there is somebody else that's later on referred to as Tammy's boyfriend. So it seems like at some point it's it's floated that they were in an open marriage, but know if that's the case because Tammy did not seem open-minded to an open marriage. She seemed quite jealous of any activity that Sydney might have had. Tammy was reportedly very controlling in her marriage and was by all accounts the dominant partner in the relationship. So it was not going to be good news at all for Sydney or Heather if and when Tammy discovered the affair, which of course she did. It's hard to know exactly what was going on with Sydney and Heather. He would later characterize his relationship with Heather as just a brief fling, just sex. It meant nothing. And then after he got involved with Heather, Heather became obsessed with him and wouldn't leave him alone. Well, Heather's friends maintain that the couple was in love, that they said, I love you, that Sydney had professed his love for her. They had discussed Heather moving to Florida with his family if the Moors moved to Florida and that Heather would be his children's nanny. Oof. Whoa. Yeah. So after the fact, after Heather disappears, now Sydney's saying that was nothing. It was meaningless. And Heather's friends are saying, no, that's absolutely not what was going on. So we don't know what the real romantic intent was, but we do know that along the way, the juice was no longer worth the squeeze, meaning that they both mutually decided that this was not worth continuing before Tammy found out about it, by the way. Okay. Everyone at the Tilted Kilt knew about the affair, and while Heather did have some loyal friends, other coworkers did not take too kindly to the fact that she was a 20-year-old hostess sleeping pretty openly with a married man. So when the affair had been going on for about three months, Heather received a phone call at work from a woman who claimed to be Sydney's wife. And this woman said that she knew all about the affair and had some obviously strong words for Heather. 
Heather was so freaked out about it that she asked her manager if she could leave work early. And it turned out that the woman on the phone was not Tammy at all, but instead two servers who did not approve of her extracurricular activities and were pulling a prank on her. We're essentially giving her a warning shot. I guess some people wrote some demeaning things on the office blackboard as well about don't sleep with the married janitor, et cetera, et cetera, with some salty language. But this whole thing where these girls pranked her made her realize that if it had happened in real life, that she'd be completely freaked out. So after that happened, that was when she ended the relationship with Sydney. Which, it sounds like she didn't really want to end it, but she did not want to be sneaking around anymore. So it was basically like, look, I love you, but until you leave your wife, I can't be with you. Call me when you're single, essentially. And Heather was deeply sad about the whole thing. She had absolutely developed strong feelings for Sydney. She tweeted around the time that this affair was breaking up or almost over. Once upon a time, an angel and a devil fell in love. It did not end well. Which does seem like something I would have Facebooked. <laughs> yes, 100%. Yes. <laughs> and unfortunately, she was right. It certainly did not end well. Because despite the fact that the affair had ended, it became clear that 40-year-old Tammy had found out about her longtime husband sleeping with a woman literally half her age. And she was none too pleased about it, especially given that Heather was only five years older than their oldest child. Ooh. That would make me sick. That would make me so sick. I mean, that makes me sick. Furious. Story. Furious, yeah. absolutely. On November 2nd, 2013, Tammy began texting Heather from Sydney's phone, threatening her as well as sending her sexually explicit photos of Tammy and Sydney, including a photo of Sydney going down on Tammy. Ooh. She also began to call the Tilted Kilt constantly, trying to get Heather fired and threatening to pull Sydney's cleaning services if they didn't fire Heather. There was also a lot of calls that Tammy made to Heather, threatening her, saying that she wanted to meet up with her. Just scary stuff altogether. And there was also a text exchange between Tammy and her sister Ashley on November 11th about going to the Tilted Kilt and trying to get a look at Heather. Ashley texted Tammy, we are walking around Broadway. Ashley said her boyfriend wants to have a drink at the Tilted Kilt. Did you tell him? Tammy replied, please don't. Take a pic for me. No, we just walked by and had a drink and she wasn't there. And then Tammy texted, I think the bitch is in hiding. Because basically at this point, when she figured out who Heather was, Heather was saying, you don't have to worry about this anymore. It's over. There's nothing going on. There's nothing to worry about anymore. Yeah, Tammy just kept coming after her, even though she's like, look, I'm not seeing your husband anymore. This is over. And she was real freaked out about this, especially the fact that there was, I think, at least one occasion, if not more, where she had to be sent home from work because they were like, look, this lady's going to keep calling the Tilted Kilt unless you leave. So you just got to go home. Yeah, and it's annoying. And it's embarrassing. It's really, really humiliating. And Sydney was not escaping punishment either. Sydney had to give his phone to Tammy. He was no longer allowed to leave the house alone, including for work, which means that I guess that their kids would go to her sister's and then Tammy would go to every job throughout the night. She'd go to all of his jobs with him while he's cleaning restaurants and doing his work. And she would keep an eye on him. 
And she also literally handcuffed him to the bed. Like when they would go to sleep. Yes. So he couldn't leave. Sydney would later confirm this was true, even though later on Tammy denies it. But in one of his early conversations with the police, Sydney says, my wife handcuffs me to the bed because we're going through a tough marital time. Um, yeah. Later on, she says that she just handcuffed him for sex play. And then she even says, oh, we have a sleigh bed. So I couldn't even handcuff him. But on December 6th, she had texted a friend. She was talking about the affair. And she says, it is what it is. I've turned down a lot of hot dick, especially early in the first year of marriage. Truly, it doesn't hurt. I fell out of love with him two years ago. Then she texted, now he has to stay, change the bed until further notice. Will I live my life as a single mom? Uh, So yeah, she tries to deny it later on, but there's text evidence and other people's accounts that they either heard of or know it to be true that she was handcuffing him to the bed. That's insane. Yeah, Tammy's online flirtations also allegedly began after she discovered the affair. I'm not entirely sure of this timeline, Although it does make, I mean, not sense, nothing makes sense about this, but like some sort of sick, twisted sense that she would try to get revenge by finding a guy even younger than Heather to sleep with. But that's like really messed up for your kids then. It's really messed up because now we're talking like a three year difference. So like she's a mom. I think their oldest was a boy. So you're going to be the mother of a 15 year old boy and be talking to an 18 year old boy. No, thank you. It's not very like Disney. <laughs> it's not just go to the park. It's not giving Disney. Get a churro. Have a nice day. Forget these other people, man. Well, another one of Sydney's punishments was that Tammy forced him to get a huge tattoo bearing her name on his lower stomach directly over his crotch area. It's alleged that she made him get this tattoo as punishment and as future warning to any other hoes that come for her man. Well, I mean, how is that going to happen when he's handcuffed to the bed? (laughs) I guess it's so they can take some selfies. She can like have one pointing to her name like, yeah, (laughs) I don't know. But she also said that they got this tattoo for him and it was his idea, she says, back in 2012 before the affair happened. But we don't know. We don't know that for sure. Let's see the receipts. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently... Sydney was happy to do this. He said later on when he is interviewed by the police that he was happy to do anything he had to do to save their marriage. But this does not seem healthy to me. This is not what I think a marriage and family therapist would recommend as how to get over infidelity. No. (laughs) There's also evidence that Tammy was straight up stalking and harassing Heather. Law enforcement would later say that they tracked all three of the party's phones via GPS, and it appeared that Tammy and Sydney were following Heather, but mostly because Tammy had Sydney's phone, likely. So we don't know if it was his choice, if he was in on it, or if she just had his phone. But there were different times where they could literally trace the two phones following Heather's phone. So scary. This is very, very, very scary. And Heather's friends say that she was actively very scared of Tammy, which is this is just all too much to be doing. I mean, obviously, I was joking about therapy earlier, but this sounds like something you should be doing. And what I think is, even if you're really angry, because we talk about it 
all the time about the wronged party. And we have so much sympathy for people who go through infidelity and are completely the rug is pulled out from under them because of what their partner's done. But it's just not a healthy way to work through this because the more you stalk and harass the affair partner, the more you're letting that affair partner, that extra person who's not in your marriage, have power over your marriage. No, it's the whole thing is unhinged. If you're actually working towards reunion and being together and rebuilding trust, like you're not following around the affair partner when she's leaving her work as a hostess at the Tilted Kilt. I mean, that's just not what like you said, any professional would ever advise doing. No. That's not what you do as a normal person. So that's not how you're going to mend all of these things that have hurt your relationship. No, absolutely not. And so that's like even coming from a Tammy-centered perspective, to heal your relationship, you need to make sure he has cut out all contact. He no longer works with a tilted kilt. It's on him to quit that job, not her. And that you guys make the changes necessary in your marriage to have a better and open communicative and dialogue going forward. It is not about taking out some revenge on this 20-year-old girl who clearly made a mistake. I mean, it just, it breaks my heart because this was a dumb mistake that Heather made. And if she hadn't gone missing, I'm pretty sure that she would not have made a mistake like this again. And we also don't know, I mean, what... Sydney was telling her she didn't it wasn't her responsibility to track down his divorce papers if he's saying hey I'm gonna leave my wife when you're 20 years old you might believe him I think you live you learn and you learn to get the receipts before you get involved with anyone yeah but she didn't get the chance to so Heather disappeared sometime in the wee hours of December 18th 2013 so let's go back to where all of these players were when that went down so leading up to her disappearance, on November 21st, the Moore family took a road trip out to Disneyland, California. In your neck of the woods there, Andy. Tammy's social media shows a happy family trip and no indication that things between the couple were very, very bad. Her private messages, though, would show a very different picture. She texted a friend on December 6, 2013, that she hated Sydney and that she was chaining him to her bedside, which was part of those texts that I read to you guys. Even at Disney? Yeah, while they were there. Because it looks like they were back from their trip sometime between the 8th and the 11th, depending on sources. Of December or November? Of December. So they went for a very long trip. And Sydney would later characterize that as something they were doing to heal their relationship. Tammy wasn't very impressed with the castle at Disneyland. She said it's so small that it could be the size of her screened-in porch. <laughs> It really gets my goat when people come down on the L.A. castle. I grew up also going to Florida Disney. And the first time that I saw the L.A. castle, I definitely was shocked. <laughs> but now living here and having that be the go-to Disney, there's something very quaint and sweet about it. And I really love it. And so I'm personally insulted by Tammy <laughs> saying that. I knew you might be. I personally think that the Disneyland castle is adorable. I love it. Honestly, it's definitely better to see that first before the Magic Kingdom in Florida, for sure. But like, look at the park differences, too. One is 20 times bigger than the other. So it's just, yeah, you know, pick your poison. And Disneyland's the Ridge, right, in Anaheim? I believe so. So yeah, they were seemingly back sometime between December 8th and 11th. Meanwhile, Heather had been rebuilding her life. She was supposed to start working as a makeup artist shortly before Christmas. 
She told Brianna that she was going to start attending church with her regularly. And she had reconnected with a cute guy from her high school on Instagram. The guy's name was Stephen Chiraldi. He had been a year ahead of Heather in school. And he now also worked as a cook in a Myrtle Beach restaurant. Cute. Yeah, he seems like a really cute kid. Heather and Steven had a really wholesome first date. They had dinner, no drinks, and then they ended up driving around for a little while chatting. At some point, Heather mentioned that she didn't know how to drive stick shift, which was something that was constantly coming up with her and her parents, like her dad had tried to teach her. Hadn't gone well. Also, Brianna drove a stick shift and she was never letting Heather anywhere near her car. She was like, you'll screw it up because you don't know how to drive stick. So Stephen offered to teach her to drive in his pickup truck, which was manual. And they ended up going to an empty parking lot. And within 20 minutes, it actually seemed like she had it down. Sometimes it just takes somebody that you're not all head up about. Like your parents are trying to teach you something. You're like, no. <laughs> And so he taught her in a way that she seemed to totally get it. And she even had him take a picture of her driving his truck so she could text her dad. And at 10.43 p.m., she wrote, just learn to drive stick. I'm a pro with the picture. And of course, Heather would later mention this to Brianna as well. After the driving lesson, they went back to Stevens where they watched a movie together. And then afterwards, Steven drove Heather home, dropping her off sometime between 1.15, 1.30. Although I did see different reports about exactly when she got home, but it's sometime in this window, we believe. So it's now early Wednesday morning, December 18th. Around 1.44 a.m., Brianna received the distressing phone call when hysterical Heather told her that Sydney had called her from an unknown number shortly after Stephen had dropped her off. Sydney had told Heather that he was leaving his wife, that he missed Heather, and that he needed to see her right away. Brianna managed to talk Heather down and made her promise to sleep on it before speaking to Sydney again. She said, don't answer any more phone calls. Don't reach out to him. Let it go. Brianna believed that Heather had listened to her and fell asleep confident that Heather was also miles away, snug in her bed in the home that they shared together. But unfortunately, that was far from the case. Around four in the morning, that same early morning, an Horry County police officer was on a routine patrol when he came across an awkwardly parked car at a boat launch on Peachtree Road. The car was locked and there was no sign of its driver. Also, there were no boats docked at this launch at the time. He made a note saying that it was strange and carried on his patrol. It is likely that he missed Heather by less than 30 minutes. I thought you were going to say seconds. No, 30 minutes. I think that they think it's about 20 minutes, possibly. The car sat there for another day and a half. And this was in a very remote area. It was a weird happenstance that he happened to be there even then. Because it's really dark at this time. Which is probably why he would have noticed a car being so out of place, though. Yes, because no one was around here. So the car sat there for another day and a half before it was reported to the police. The responding officer ran the tags and it came up registered to Heather's father, Terry. Heather's family had been only slightly concerned at this point because she hadn't called them back, but it wasn't totally out of the ordinary. She's a young woman who has a job, is in school, is starting a new job. She's got a busy life. People don't call their parents back immediately all the time. So they were kind of like, well, she's probably doing her own thing. But now, of course, they're very concerned because there's no way she would abandon her car like this. Terry went with the officers to Peachtree Landing, and they were able to search the car. 
Well, they did find Heather's driver's license. They did not find her cell phone or her purse. When Terry tried to call Heather, it went straight to voicemail. None of her friends had heard from her, and she hadn't shown up for a shift at the Tilted Kilt, which was very unlike Heather, as was not telling her parents that she was leaving town or not posting on social media. Even though she might have some back and forth with her parents about her decisions, they were in constant contact. And she was somebody who was more of an oversharer than somebody who would draw away and not post about things that were going on, even if they were tough in her life. So everything seems wrong in this situation, and the police agreed. 20-year-old Heather Elvis was officially declared missing. So they talked to Brianna, who told them about Heather's date, as well as the upsetting phone call about Heather's former married lover getting back in touch with her. So right away, they have two primary suspects. They have two men, two guys, that could have been involved in this disappearance. They interviewed Stephen, and they found him completely credible. He lived with his mother and his brother, and I think that they worked the night shift or like some part of the night shift at Walmart, a 24-hour Walmart. So his mother was able to alibi him because when he got home from dropping off Heather, she was there and she knew he was home for the rest of the night because she was awake. So they completely believed him. Stephen was off the hook. Now they're very interested in Sydney for obvious reasons, but they also got their hands on Heather's phone records to verify what Brianna said and to trace Heather's communications and whereabouts throughout the night. At 1.35 a.m., so this would be shortly after Stephen dropped Heather off, she received a call from a payphone. She was at home at the time. She spoke with the person for four minutes, and then it appeared that she had tried to call the number back three times in a row. So ostensibly, that's Sydney calling her from the payphone. She tries to call him back three times in a row. He did not answer at the payphone. How soon after did she try to call him back? Did it have that? Like almost immediately. And then she waited and then she called again. No answer. Waited, called again. So she called Brianna after this. So when she called Brianna at 1.44, it was after the four-minute conversation and the three attempts to call the payphone back. According to her phone's GPS, she then got into her car and drove to Longbeard's Bar and Grill and parked in the parking lot. Now, if you recall, this is one of the restaurant chains that Cindy worked for. She tried to call the payphone back four more times. But again, there was no answer at the payphone. She then drove to a housing development that was a couple minutes down the road, I think. And then she returned back to Longbeard's, sat in the parking lot again, dialed the payphone number two more times. I think all things considered, she tried to call this payphone number back about nine times. She then went back to her apartment. At what time? This is probably around three in the morning at this point. And they don't know whether she actually went into her apartment or whether she was just parked outside trying to decide what to do. And it looks like at that point, she tried to call what turned out to be Sydney's number. So his cell phone number at this point. A few times. At 3.17 in the morning, Someone answered the call. So someone answered Sydney's phone. And it lasted for just over four minutes, this call. After that, she immediately, almost immediately, so she might have still been in her car just sitting outside of her apartment building, started driving, eventually ending up at Peachtree Landing. She called Sydney's number again, 
but got no answer. Her last outgoing call was recorded at 3.41 in the morning. A minute and a half later, data records for Heather's phone ended. Ugh. So they pulled all of those from records and GPS tracking. They didn't have the phone. They didn't have the phone. That's wild and amazing. So just after four in the morning, that was when her car was noticed, but no Heather, obviously. So naturally, they know that there's been this conflict. Now they have her dialing his phone a few times. Incessantly, they know that someone talked to her at 317 in the morning from Sydney's household, you would assume. So they picked up Sydney pretty quickly after reviewing these records. They interviewed him. He did cop to having a casual affair, and he alleged that he had been busy the entire evening that Heather disappeared with his wife, Tammy. Hmm. Convenient. Really convenient. He said that Tammy helped him work at a couple places that evening, which had a lot to do with the fact that she was going to stay by his side because he had cheated on her. And that apparently before they had left, she had had a couple drinks at home because they like to pregame before they go out. And I guess after he did some work, they were going to go out to this club together. But then when they drove over to the club, they said that there was no one in the parking lot. So they decided that it was dead. And then at some point they went to a Walmart. So Sydney could buy a pregnancy test. Oh. Later on, investigators would find Walmart security camera recordings that did confirm this. So this was at like, I think, 1.17 in the morning, sometime around early 1 a.m. hour. He was caught. That's when I go buy my pregnancy tests at 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Sydney told the police that the test was for his wife, 40-year-old Tammy, as they had been trying to have another baby. And we will definitely return to this whole scenario. So just put a pin in that one for now. He then said that he went to go get gas, failing to mention that he had made a phone call from a payphone at the gas station at exactly 1.35 in the morning. I'm sure you can guess what number that payphone called at exactly 1.35 in the morning. Yep. Heather. Then he claimed that he and Tammy drove down the highway to look at Christmas decorations and had sex in at least two different parking lots. Wow. Yeah, and there's some, like, I read a couple different accounts where they had sex in a couple different parking lots. After getting the pregnancy test, there was another account where they might have fooled around in a parking lot before going to Walmart and the gas station. Suffice to say, there was a lot of sex in public places going on during this night, at least according to Sydney. And who's with their kids? You said it's like her sister just watches the kids while they... Yeah, so I think that they said that it wasn't uncommon that their kids are up really late because they both maintain a night schedule because he works at night and she homeschools them. So it wasn't weird that the kids would be up pretty late, but they also were with her sister reportedly. But again, the oldest one is 15 years old. So I think at that point you would let your kids be home alone potentially. But I think that allegedly they were with Tammy's sister, Ashley. And I believe that all of the families lived on the same property. So they'd be close to the home that they lived at. So Sydney said that he believed that they went home around maybe 2, 2.30 in the morning. He claimed that Heather had called him and that he ended up answering one of those calls and that his wife was in the room when he answered the call 
He said that Heather wanted to meet up with him. He told her no because he loved his wife and he was trying to fix his marriage. They apparently exchanged some words and he hung up on her and then put his phone on silent. So he said if she called me again, I wasn't paying attention to it because my phone was on silent. He said he then had sex with Tammy again. What is he taking? Some of that horny goat weed you can get at the gas station. <laughs> While he was making that pay phone, he picked some of that stuff up. Oh, my gosh. Well, the detective said in the interrogation, which I thought was really funny, she's not pregnant. She's going to be. <laughs> 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 it's like recorded in the interrogation. Hilarious. And, and he was like, I, I know we're trying, apparently. Oh, yeah. So they told him then, look, there's surveillance camera footage from the gas station that shows you going into the payphone and making a call. And guess what? He could track that to Heather Elvis's phone. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. I was just telling her to leave me alone. Sydney said that after having sex with Tammy some more at home, that he made Tammy pot stickers at some point, I think at like four in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. And he says this because she's on a diet. Like, that was, like, so clear. Like, I made her pot stickers because she's on a diet. It's like... At 4 in the morning. What kind of diet is it eating pot stickers at 4.30 in the morning? Because I want in on that diet because that sounds delicious. Well, Jesse, maybe she was actually just, like, really hungry and had already prayed the rest <laughs> of the day, you know? That is a reference to our Patreon bonus episode, The Way Down. But I agree with you. Andy, that I would probably also be a little peckish after all that sex. So then he went on to say after he made her pot stickers and delivered her pot stickers and orange juice that she then handcuffed him to the bed and they went to sleep. Oh, my God. I mean, that works for the alibi, I guess. It does. There's no he couldn't go anywhere. I was handcuffed um, to the bed. Yeah. I think this had to be one of the more bizarre interviews that the police had to conduct because this is blowing my mind. Obviously, they thought that Sydney and Tammy absolutely had something to do with Heather's disappearance. They interviewed Heather's friends and coworkers and found a motive for murder beyond just an affair and a murderously angry wife. In the weeks and days before Heather's disappearance, she had complained about gaining weight. Her manager reported that she had had to get a new uniform. She had gone up three bra sizes because she had to get a whole new kit, and that her kilt size had gone up at least one size. Heather had told people that she was concerned that she was pregnant. She was so worried that she was pregnant, she actually took a pregnancy test at the tilted kilt, but the results were inconclusive. It said error, apparently. So I don't know. We know that she wasn't drinking on that date with Stephen, she was very upset after talking to Sydney. They later found a pregnancy test box in the trash in her apartment. Then we also have Sydney buying a pregnancy test at one something in the morning. So let's go on with what they were saying. Tammy and Sydney were having all of that sex that night to make a baby. If that's the case, if that's when she's ovulating, then you wouldn't need a pregnancy test for two weeks. No. No, everyone knows that. Yeah, there's no need for an emergency stop in the middle no. of the night to get a pregnancy test if you're having all the sex to make a baby. And 
Okay, let's go with this even though. Let's like, like so that doesn't make any sense. But let's go with the fact that maybe they are trying to make a baby. Maybe that this is the magical baby that heals marriages like we've talked about in previous episodes. So maybe they are trying to make a baby. I mean, I don't think that that would help their point as far as explaining motive because I cannot think of anything that would enrage a woman more who is 40 years old and trying to conceive than their husband's 20-year-old mistress carrying their baby when you can't get pregnant. Absolutely. Trying to conceive with your hormones all over the place and feeling like a failure because you can't get pregnant and worrying that maybe like you're a little too old, which plenty of people conceive after 40. It's not what we're saying. It's just that it gets harder as you get older. And then you find out. So even if we go with what they're saying, that they bought this pregnancy test because Tammy was trying, which she did apparently allegedly suffer a miscarriage later on. So it seems likely that they were. Even if this is the case, then I can't think of a stronger motive. Uh, No, 100 percent. So the police got search warrants, but they could not find any evidence of Heather whatsoever in the Moore's truck. But there was a woman who lived on the street and basically it was the most direct road between the Moore's house and Peachtree Landing. And there was only three miles between those destinations. So a woman contacted the police and said that she had evidence of a truck driving down the road around the time that Heather's phone went offline and then driving back directly afterwards so they canvassed the rest of the street and they found another private security camera that showed the same results basically how fast it was traveling when it reached that security camera so they look at the security footage and what was captured was a dark ford f-150 and it looks like it was somewhere else for seven minutes about and then it goes right back down the street. Okay. And is that their truck? It's their truck. After analysis and video enhancement by the South Carolina Highway Patrol and the FBI, the truck was determined to be Sydney's. Apparently, he had done a bunch of customization on this truck. Like, he had gotten all the bells and whistles and the upgrades. And so even though you could not see his license plate number you could see all the other things that he did to the car you could see all the other things that had been upgraded and apparently in this area there was only like one out of 140 and when you look at the upgrades it was it just had to be his and they did a test with his truck later on by these security cameras and it was so clearly exactly a match if you're gonna do that don't don't do something illegal because you're gonna get busted because it's gonna be that much easier to identify it like how are you not yeah, if you're going to do crime, just get like a gray Honda Civic. Not that we want to like... No upgrades. Tell you how to do things, but... <laughs> Bro, it's going to be really easy to identify if you get all the bells and whistles on your car. Yep. Well, I'm guessing that at the time that he got the truck, he wasn't thinking about committing kidnapping and murder, or hopefully he wasn't. In February of 2014, the police searched the Moore's home and arrested both Tammy and Sydney for murder kidnapping, conspiracy to commit kidnapping, obstruction of justice, and two counts of indecent exposure. Ooh, throwing that in on top, huh? Throwing it right in. The latter charges related to, of course, Sydney lying about the payphone and the couple's predilection for public sex. 
they might have had all that sex that night because apparently they found stuff on their phones that showed them having sex in a lot of public places. They were also later hit with Medicaid fraud charges, too. There was some lying about benefits and not claiming income from Sydney's business. Not cool. Everything about this case was messy from start to finish. Basically, I'm not sure when in the timeline this is, but at some point, Tammy was posting on Facebook about how her husband cheated on her with some, quote, psycho whore. Now, this is after it's revealed that Heather has gone missing. This social media post blew my damn mind that anyone who is being considered or suspected of criminal charges would post something like this publicly. Tammy wrote on Facebook. When? This was right around the time that they're investigating them. So from like December to February. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, Sydney cheated on me in the months of September and October with a psycho whore who has since went missing. And now her crazy daddy is threatening to kill my children and Sydney, therefore making Sydney stupid. She put in parentheses. This girl grabbed his business card out of the office at her workplace and had fantasies about him as far back as March, but talked about it in July, naming him. I don't know any other word to describe my husband at this point. All you have to do is research this girl's Twitter, although four months of it has gone missing in the past couple of weeks, and her Tumblr to see what kind of a twisted person she truly is. I could care less seeing that I had a boyfriend of my own for the past couple of years, but when someone brings my children into this scenario, it's a whole other story. I will not tolerate anyone hurting my children because my husband banged a hoe three times in the backseat of her car and nothing more. I could care less what he screwed around with, but the fact that this jerk is stalking my family is unacceptable. Where did the parentheses end? (laughs) There's like a couple. There's actually like, I forgot to end the parentheses, but there's like, I think at least two, if not three parenthetical statements in this update. Do you feel like she's trying to like pin it all on Sydney? I don't know what Tammy's problem is, but Tammy can't shut up. And we'll get into this later at her trial, other instances where she always needs to get out her opinion, her truth, convince people that she's a victim in this. And there was a real social media battle going on between Tammy and Sydney and their supporters and family. They had like a big family in this area, so they did have some support. And then there was the Elvis family and their supporters. And so this was getting messy online, which I don't blame. I mean, I don't believe he, like Heather's parents weren't threatening children, of course. They were not. But like getting spicy on social media, going to reporters, asking for justice, that's what a parent does when they're looking for their child. And when the police are saying, hey, we have all this evidence and Heather's friends are saying, yeah, she was cheating with this older guy. And then his wife was harassing her before she went missing. Like, I can understand why things are getting really heated in this situation. And Tammy doesn't back down. She likes to pour gasoline on the fight. And this is very ill-advised social media posting, I would say. So this is a messy, messy situation. They're going back and forth. There's a lot of information getting leaked. Things are getting leaked through witnesses to the press and social media. It got so bad that the judge actually imposed a gag order on all involved parties. Stop talking about it. Stop talking to each other. There's restoring orders. It was a mess. In March of 2016, 
prosecutors dropped the murder charges against both Sydney and Tammy without prejudice, which means that they can reinstate those charges later if and when the state is ready to prosecute them, which essentially signals that they did not have the evidence they needed to prove murder because they had not found Heather Elvis's remains. So as you can imagine, this was tremendously disappointing for Heather's family. It's also a huge hole in their hearts that they haven't found Heather. But I do think it's a prudent move on the prosecutor's part to not go forward with something they can't win and then risk double jeopardy later on if and when they get more evidence or they find Heather. But they did still intend to go after Sydney and Tammy for kidnapping. So Sydney's trial was first up in June of 2016. The prosecution admitted that the case was circumstantial, but the evidence was, quote, the best anybody could ask for. They had witnesses testify to the relationship, that Heather was scared of Tammy and heartbroken by Sydney, and that Heather believed she might be pregnant. Brianna testified, and they had evidence that Sydney lied, of course, about the payphone call. They showed him on camera at Walmart buying the pregnancy test and the video evidence of his truck going back and forth from Peachtree Landing at exactly the time that Heather's phone stopped recording data. And the prosecution basically posited that Sydney and Tammy were going to make Heather take this pregnancy test to prove once and for all if she was carrying Sydney's baby. Sydney's attorney argued that there wasn't a shred of forensic evidence. Sydney's attorney basically threw Tammy under the bus in his closing arguments. He pointed out all the witnesses who said that Sydney was submissive to Tammy, that potentially it wasn't even Sydney talking on the phone to Heather at 317 in the morning because a lot of people reported that Tammy had taken Sydney's phone. So maybe he had to sneak away and use the payphone to call Heather because maybe what Brianna was saying is true. Maybe this guy who had this affair and had this controlling wife did fall in love with Heather. What if he did? What if he did want to be with her? Now his wife has got him on lockdown and he gets a second to run to this payphone and give her a call and say, I'm thinking about you. I miss you. I'm going to figure this out. But then his wife figures it out and she sets a trap for Heather. So this is what in... In Sydney's trial, this is what his attorney says in his closing statements. He says, I mean, that doesn't bode well for Tammy and Sydney's relationship, though. His attorney is saying this? No. So his attorney was named Truslow. Maybe, Truslow said, Tammy lured Heather to the landing. Maybe, Tammy said, let's meet at the landing. Sydney's an asshole. He's been with you and he's been with me. If you believe that that was the same F-150, the truck, ask yourself who was driving it. Who has motive to want to do something like this? Is it the person who has not shown any kind of aggressive behavior or mean behavior to anybody, including Heather Elvis, other than bringing her Starbucks coffee and calling her saying, I still want to be with you? Or is it the person that the first three witnesses said that even after the relationship was found out and stopped, continued to harass and threaten and would not let it go with Heather Elvis, even to the point of sending pornographic photos of her and her husband to Heather Elvis? That shows you a state of mind. That shows you something in your mind that will not go away. Those kinds of things feed on themselves. That anger feeds on itself and it doesn't go away. If Tammy Moore wanted to drive the F-150, Tammy Moore's driving the F-150. I mean, he's not wrong. 
He's not wrong. In the end, he said, I am not prosecuting Tammy Moore. I am defending Sydney Moore. Tammy Moore is charged with kidnapping. Tammy's trial is coming up. It will be in this courtroom. There will be 12 other people who will decide what happens. I'm merely asking you to use your common sense and you come up with the more likely scenario because if you don't, somebody's getting convicted for something they didn't do. I'm sure that my client doesn't like everything that I'm saying, but I have to go where the facts lead me. I'm sure he doesn't want to think about his wife like this. I'm not sure if it's crossed his mind. If it is his wife, or more importantly, the mother of his three children, I'm not even sure if I want to go sit next to him when I go over there, but I'll tell you this. I'm going to say what I have to say as I see it. Just, I think a good defense. Really good defense attorney. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I if I was in the jury, I'd be like, you're right. She's the crazy one. She's the crazy bitch who was really angry and has been harassing her. And tons of witnesses have witnessed this harassment. She was calling the tilted kilt. She was saying all this stuff to everybody there. I wonder what he looked like when he was saying that, what Sydney looked like. I don't know. I'm sure Tammy was less than psyched about that defense. Doesn't make her look good. She wasn't in the room, though. I don't know if she was. In the end, it definitely proved good enough to muddy the waters, at least with the jury. After deliberating for seven hours, the jury told the judge that they would not be able to come to a unanimous decision. Ten members of the jury wanted to convict, but two remained holdouts, and they said that nothing could sway them. They just felt like there was too much reasonable doubt. They weren't going to convict Sydney. Wow. Due to the hung jury, the judge declared a mistrial. So Sydney would end up tried again. But I mean, he went and got the pregnancy test, though. I mean, I think he was involved for sure. I just think that the defense was good enough to raise the question, are you sure this is what happened? And they did a successful job there raising reasonable doubt because I can see how you'd be sitting there going, I'm not sure she didn't do it alone. But again, yeah, he got the pregnancy test. You know, he's like running into Walmart at 1 a.m. getting a pregnancy test. He made the payphone call. I mean, it looks like his defense attorney was trying to excuse the payphone call. I mean, from where I sit, Tammy was the mastermind, but he was the lure. He was the one who lured her out because she wasn't going to go anywhere to meet Tammy. I don't think his attorney's statement that she would agree to meet Tammy in the middle of the night in a dark place would hold water if you actually examine it. No, no. Absolutely not. So they couldn't convict him. They couldn't convict him. But it's a mistrial. So that means he's going to get tried again. So there's going to be another trial happening. And later on, he did get between his trials. He was also convicted of obstruction of justice and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So they're holding him for obstruction of justice because they have proof he lied about the payphone call. In October of 2018, nearly five years after Heather went missing, Tammy Moore had her day in court. The prosecution painted Tammy as the ringleader and mastermind behind the kidnapping. They submitted evidence that Sydney and Tammy's phones had followed Heather's, proof that they were stalking her prior, way prior to the disappearance, plus the mountain of phone calls Tammy had made and harassing texts that she had sent to Heather. The prosecution portrayed Tammy as a jealous woman who was consumed by anger and rage, taking out on a girl half her age, but also her husband. Sydney's mother testified that Tammy had always been controlling in their relationship. In 20 years since they had been together, they had only ever seen their son alone one singular time since he met Tammy. Whoa. Yeah, she wouldn't let him even go home to visit his parents alone. 
She also said that within days of the affair being discovered that Tammy had beat Sydney very badly. She had beat him black and blue. There was, of course, all of the stuff about handcuffing Sydney to the bed, forcing him to get a tattoo, not allowing him to leave the house without her, etc. So the prosecution was raising the question, what would a woman this angry do when she found out that her husband's affair partner was carrying his child? Yeah, she'd kill her. The defense argued that there was no physical evidence that tied Tammy to Heather's disappearance. There was no DNA. There was no fingerprints. There was no physical evidence in the Moore's truck. And that even the truck video was suspect. They said that you couldn't really tell. There was no license plate number. It just was a similar truck. They decided to put Tammy on the stand. And on the 2020 episode, which I I do encourage you guys to check out, they said that she was so narcissistic that she demanded to be on the stand, essentially. She wanted everyone to look at her and hear what she had to say. And she was one of those people that really did believe she was the smartest person in the room all of the time. So even when your attorney says it was probably not a great idea, she's like, don't worry about me. I can handle it. She's like, did you know that I used to be on tour (laughs) and photograph the band Warrant? They were really hot back then. I don't mean in looks, but on MTV. So that's what they said on the 2020. And she also, speaking of the 2020, violated the gag order to speak to 2020 the night before her testimony, which she did not really say anything substantive. She tried to say that she was on social media all night and there's proof of her posting about this and in like some couponing thing, et cetera, et cetera. And they're coming back to her and they're being like, okay, so everyone's lying but you. And she's like, yep. So the general gist of her statements to 2020 were everybody's lying but me. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't think she did herself any favors on 2020 or on the stand. She tried to bat her eyelashes and smile and seem relaxed, but it was very weird. She like addressed the jury directly. And there was something very forced about her entire performance. Brianna had to testify, of course, and she said that she was terrified of Tammy, who was staring her down from the defense table. And you can actually see Brianna on the stand. They show her on 2020 and she's like, keeps looking over there and she's clearly nervous. Terrified, yeah. Terrified because of this woman who is giving her the stare. I was going to say, I keep using this phrase lately, the hairy eyeball. (laughs) But yeah, she's just giving her the stare down. And... I guess that it was just really, really hard. More than anything, Tammy's testimony was very hard on Heather's family. Her dad said, every time that woman used my daughter's name, it was like stabbing me with an ice pick. Of course. And Tammy also, speaking of using names, she started using prosecutor Nancy Livesey's first name several times, like in this like weird power play where she'd be like, okay, Nancy. And Nancy like finally is like, have we met? Do we know each other? I don't think we're on a first name basis here. It was very rude. I think she was trying to come across like we're equals, we're even. No, one of you is literally (laughs) on trial for murder and kidnapping and the other is a prosecutor. So I think you guys aren't really on even playing fields. Yeah, it just came across disrespectful. So whatever she was trying to do did not, I don't think it would serve her with the jury, especially because I think in the South also respect and manners are still appreciated like yes ma'am no ma'am yeah way more than in other areas of the country so I don't know how this was going to go over too well for her 
The prosecution presented their own witnesses, of course, including a manager at the Tilted Kilt who testified that an angry Tammy had called the restaurant and demanded that they fire Heather because, Tammy said, Heather was spreading rumors that she was pregnant by Sydney, which shows that Tammy knew about the possible pregnancy. Tammy's cousin, Donald DiMarino, testified that Sydney had shown him a cell phone photo of Heather at some family gathering. And it was like a flip phone photo. In the photo, Heather had blood on her shirt, scratches on her face, and appeared deceased. Wait, and this just came into the trial? I believe that he testified at at least two out of the three trials, if not all of them. But the thing about Donald is that he was incarcerated at the time. He had run-ins with the law, and he also had issues with drug addiction. So the defense always was able to hammer out that that he's not reliable somehow. But he absolutely did not get any sort of deal for this testimony at all. And he was just trying to come forward to be a good person because he had formerly been very close to the couple. He said he was in their wedding. Tammy also tried to say, like she said to 2020, that her social media activity on the night of the disappearance proved that she was online and not out kidnapping. But the prosecutor pointed out that while she might have had some activity earlier on in the night and then later on in the night, there was about a 20 to 30 minute window right around the time that Heather's phone stopped recording data that she was absolutely not online. So if that's your defense, there's a big 20 minute hole right in the middle there. Right where she could have been murdered. Exactly. In closing, the defense argued that Heather lived a high-risk lifestyle, essentially. They said that she had at points lived with various people, crashed with them, dated around. She had once been in an abusive relationship. It's just a lot of victim-blaming BS. They're trying to say, sure, she got into the situation, but look at this poor girl's life. I mean, it could have been anyone who took her and murdered her. Michael Fleeman wrote about the closing statement that the attorney urged the jury not to get the wrong impression after he said, it's not stable, it's terrible, it's awful, talking about Heather's life. She has an awful life. He says, look, we're not saying that she didn't deserve to live. We're not saying that. We're saying, look, we don't know what happened to her. She was working at the Tilted Kilt. She was having relationships with lots of different people. She was in a vulnerable position to have contact with people who might try to harm her. In the end, he told the jury, the defense did not have to prove what happened. It did not have to prove that Tammy didn't do anything. Tammy was presumed innocent. The prosecution had to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And here, he said they failed. I hate that. I hate it so much. It's so gross. And also, you're going to stand in front of her family and say she had a terrible life. Yeah, and like... I feel like that wasn't really a good job being like, yeah, something bad happened to her, but it may or may have not been my client. It could have been anyone, right? Including my client, but also anyone. Gross. I feel like I want to take a shower after that one. That one really perturbed me. And yeah, the jury felt differently about whether or not the prosecution had proven their case because after four hours of deliberation, they found Tammy guilty of kidnapping. Yeah, it's bad defense. She was also found guilty of conspiracy to kidnap, and she was sentenced to 30 years in prison for each count, but they would run concurrently. So it's just a total of 30 years in prison. 
until the end, she's kind of smirking. You got to watch the 2020 or even it, like we'll put up some pictures on the Instagram. She's just very smirky. She's always smiling in her mug shots. She's always trying to have this like Cheshire cat grin going on, which is just so infuriating and would make me so angry if I was part of Heather's family. But it is kind of aligned with her fascination with Disney. It is. I didn't even mean mean that Cheshire cat thing, but it's true. Yeah, and I think what's clear is that this is not somebody who will ever admit wrongdoing. She will never come clean and tell the family where Heather is or what happened to her. So unfortunately for the Elvis family and Heather's loved ones, there's going to be this constant question mark in their lives. I hate that. So Sydney's retrial for kidnapping occurred in 2019. There's a lot of the same sort of evidence and arguments, but there was one new piece of video evidence. Now, they tried to get this into his original trial, but the original judge did not allow it in. But this, they have the footage on 2020, and I think it's pretty damning. It was video surveillance footage from the Moore's house, which was their own surveillance camera, which, of course, was not operating the evening that Heather ended up going missing, which also I think I had meant to mention before, too, that about the truck, they found out that he had a GPS installed in his truck and that the entire time he has owned it, the GPS was only disconnected one time in years. And it was the night that Heather left, of course. Yeah. Heather disappeared, supposedly. So they have video footage of the Moors at their house on December 22nd, 2013, four days after Heather went missing and right before their truck was searched by the police. In the video, Tammy and Sydney are cleaning the hell out of this truck. They are cleaning this truck like their lives depend upon it. And they were focused specifically on the rear passenger seat. They spend hours cleaning this truck out. About 30 minutes into the cleaning, Sydney started a brush pile in the side yard and started burning every single rag that they used to clean. Everything that was used to clean any speck of that truck didn't go in a garbage. It went into a burning pile. So they asked a detective on the stand if you would be able to extract DNA from bloody rags after they were burned. And he said, no, there's no way. You're not going to get anything off of that after it's been burned to a crisp. They also introduced video evidence that showed Tammy and her sister Ashley looking for bugs or listening devices in the house and yard. So it's clear that they're hiding something, that they're cleaning the shit out of this truck. And I guess the original judge did not want it entered into evidence because he was like, oh, people clean cars. It's a newish truck. Maybe they were just cleaning it out. But then the new judge let it in. And I don't know. They look guilty as hell in the video to me. And it's like right before they're going to have to turn the truck over to get searched. When did they turn the camera back on, their home security cameras? Like the day after her disappearance? Yeah, I think it was the day after. So it was only off for a day again. Yeah, and, and the prosecutor, Nancy Livesey, says that she thinks that's the one mistake they made. I mean, they did a great job of covering this up. I mean, very sadly, unfortunately. They went to great lengths to hide this physical evidence. And she said that the one mistake they made was not turning off their cameras for the cleaning process. Yeah, but it's not like either of them are, like, both of them are in jail. Yeah, so they didn't do a great job, yeah. 
Yeah, the only thing they've done a great job of is, is hurting a family and community. Yeah, and their own family. Yeah. After only two hours of deliberation this time, the jury found Sidney guilty of kidnapping. He was also sentenced to 30 years in prison. Again, technically kidnapping and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. But the sentences run concurrently, so it's 30 years altogether. The prosecutors hope that once Sydney and Tammy have exhausted their appeals, one or the other will turn on the other one. And someday we will find out what happened to Heather and hopefully her family will be able to bury her. So they're hoping that like one of them turns on the other for some sort of plea to get out earlier? Yes. They think right now they still have hope because they're still appealing. I think so far one of Sydney's appeals has already failed. But I, I think that right now they still have some hope that they can get free through the justice system. But hopefully they can't. And hopefully if there's a good reason why they should be granted a new trial, I mean, I'm all for it. Obviously, even defendants deserve rights, <laughs> obviously. But if, if they are exhausted, then I hope that one of them does turn on the other one because I think that this family deserves answers. and. I feel very terribly for their three children as well, who have probably been through hell with this. I mean, I don't even think I have to say probably. And I think that doing the bigger thing and coming clean and giving a lot back with this information would go a long ways to hopefully healing something also with your own family. I can't imagine like just sitting in prison every day. And I mean, it has to, if you have any sort of conscience, it has to build up on you. I would be surprised if it's Tammy just because she seems pretty deny, 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 like I'm never going to admit any wrongdoing that I've ever done in my entire life. And it seems like Sydney actually had some sort of feelings for Heather. Yeah, and that's what, oh gosh, Morgan, Heather's sister, on the 2020, she's so eloquent and she's so poised and she really broke my damn heart. She was talking about Sydney, if you ever loved her, you must have had feelings for her at some point. At some point, you cared for her. Please tell us. Please help us. And she goes on to say something. She kind of closes down the 2020, and she's crying. This poor girl who lost her big sister with her, you know, the tears are running down her face. And she says, at 20 years old, you're looking for someone to love you, that somebody out there wants to love you unconditionally, and walk away from everything in the world for you. I know how happy she would have been that somebody loved her and she had this fairy tale ending, but she didn't. Somebody stole that from her and they stole that from everybody else here too. And it's true. I mean, we started this episode, I was the girl at 20 who wanted so badly to be in love and to be loved. And you make mistakes. You should not have to pay for your life, it should be a terrible dating story that she gets to tell her own daughter or son years into the future of, whoa, let me tell you guys about this crazy situation I got myself into and don't ever do something like that, guys, because it was the worst. It should be a cautionary tale that you talk about with your friends over drinks when you're in your 40s. Like, oh, man, remember being young? It shouldn't have ended her life, so. Yeah. Tammy Moore's projected release date is May 9th, 2043. And Sydney's is March 31st, 2044. So 
that gives them a long time to sit in prison and think about what they've done. In conclusion, oh, it's never a good look to be messy on social media. If you're one of our younger listeners, just let this be a cautionary tale for you. (laughs) It's just not a good look for anyone. You'll regret it later on, especially when you're facing criminal charges. And also sex in public places, it's for the excitement, but you got to remember that. Maybe don't take pictures of it. Just live it in the moment. Maybe don't take pictures of it. And maybe think about the fact that if you're going to be doing some other criminal activity, it's just going to be another charge added on there. It's not going to be a fun story to tell. Rack it on up right next to the Medicare fraud. Yes. Oh, God, I forgot about that one. That one's the least sexy charge right there. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends murder. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.